Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. We've had a bit of a break here during our winter months in Seattle, and I'm really excited to have Dr. Caitlin Vanderweel on the show. She's a neuroscientist who recently founded her own communications company called Stellate Communications. And I first learned about Caitlin through this neuroscience Twitter community um, back when I was in graduate school studying neuroscience. Um, and I'm excited to talk about social media and neuroscience and science communications today with Caitlin. So Caitlin, welcome to Lady Scientist Podcast. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm excited to, to chat about my journey. Absolutely. So I think I want to dive right into Stellate because you've had this really interesting path uh, since graduate school. You've worked as a biopharma PR person, which I have <laughs> zero context for what that's like. Um, and then this past year, you founded your own company. So um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what what brought that about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did my PhD at MIT in neuroscience, um, where I studied dopamine and motivated behaviors. And I was really dead set on being an academic scientist almost up until the very end. I had a postdoc lined up. Um, and about six months before I defended Doing experiments became increasingly more difficult, just getting the motivation to, to, to go into the lab and, and, and perform experiments was hard. And I also just had some tremendous burnout. I ended up taking six months off um, right before I defended. I was in and out of the lab, but I took some time to travel and, and kind of work on, on my mental health. And you know, right when I was wrapping up, and, and writing my thesis and thinking about the path that was in front of me, I kind of thought about it as I was so focused on like climbing up the academic ladder and getting to the top and, and being the best that I could be, that when I got to the top, I was looked out at what was in front of me and realized this is not what I want. This is not the path that I think I wanna take, at least at this moment in time where, you know, I had never, explored other opportunities. It was always about science, the science and, and being a PI. Um, so did a little bit of introspection and, and exploring other fields. Um, when I finished, I literally had zero plan for what I was going to do, which is very scary. Um, and in the back of my mind, I was like, I can always come back if I want to, you know, not, not the traditional route, but um, I, during this process, I realized that what I like most about science is thinking about it and talking about it and, um, you know, reading and discovering, um, which you can do outside of the lab, um, which led me to do some freelance work um, with a couple of science startups and, and, and mentorship, but it was kind of like a hustle, you know, you're kind of t piecing together your income and, you know, you don't really have health insurance. And while I loved the work that I did um, while I was freelancing, I, I felt like I needed a little bit more structure. So decided to go into biopharma PR um, and landed my first, I guess, real job um, in a New York-based PR firm called Russo Partners. And Russo Partners was founded by, by, by Tony Russo, who's 
in many ways, like the, the father of, of Biopharma PR. Um, he has a ton of experience in this space and they run a boutique firm that works with very early stage biotech companies. So people who very likely don't, don't have a product yet. Um, so it's a lot of thinking about the science, thinking about how their platforms are differentiators within the space and learning how to communicate that to various stakeholders, so investors and, and patients and um, you know, other professionals in the space. And I learned so much, uh, not just about like the biopharma space, but like the business of PR and how to run an account. Um, and and you know, it's, it's a very dynamic environment. You're touching a lot of things um, all the time, which kind of reminded me of being in the lab in some ways. Um, you know, you're, you're constantly reprioritizing as things come up and, um, you know, still digging into the companies and learning their narrative and learning their science. Um, so I was there for a little over a year and um, decided that I, I also wanted to explore what it was like to work with the big pharma companies. Um, so transition to Cineos Health, which is a, a much larger um, kind of bench to bedside healthcare company and they provide a lot of support um, in PR but also like clinical trial recruitment medical writing um, it's a very big public company um, so I sat on a corporate communications team and and straddled digital and social media so really working with executives on how to use social platforms for thought leadership um, which is really fun um, I, I obviously love the digital and social space um, but at that level, you're really focused on telling the corporate narrative um, and obviously those companies have products. So also talking about product and while those things are so important, um, I kind of found myself missing science, you know, missing thinking about science, talking about science, um, which um, I kind of serendipitously had a, a, a PI reach out to me and she said, hey, you know, I'm a new PI. I, you know, thought science was all that I needed to be successful as, as a young PI. But, you know, now that I am, no one knows who I am. I'm having trouble getting grants. Like social media is scary for me, even though I recognize that it's important. Can you help me? And I was, at the time, I was like, this is a fun side project that I could do and you know I believed in her science and think that she's an amazing scientist and thought of it as leveling the playing field for her you know science is increasingly you know half PR and half science and I think that it's only going to increasingly become kind of that weird mix that we as scientists aren't really trained to do um, so that's how Stelly kind of came about. I took on the project. Um, I've been working with her for a little over a year and it's been so much fun. Um, one, I get to learn about uh, science and, and what she's working on. And then since obviously launching um, Stelly Communications, bringing on several more clients in that space and supporting them on uh, building brand awareness and, and PR for, for themselves and for their labs. Wow. So naive question, when you say PR for a scientist, what, what does that entail? Like, what does the, what, what do these accounts look like now? And what are you, you know, what are you providing? Like what, 
how yeah. does this change their you know perception in the world I guess yeah so PR is kind of like this weird ambiguous you know field that people don't really know what to do with it because it encapsulates encapsulates corporate communications digital and social like product comms events like all of these things are kind of in the field of PR and what I like to think of it as is helping people present them their best selves. Um, you know, for some of my clients, they like writing a tweet is so difficult and scary for them, but you know, they are thought leaders. I mean, you don't become an assistant or associate or full PI without being a thought leader in some way. So I just help them tease apart you know, what they stand for, what their science means, how it impacts society, and help them communicate that through various forms, whether that be copy on their website, social media posts, helping them, you know, craft a Wikipedia page, or booking them on, on podcasts like, like this one. Awesome. So, so we mentioned Twitter already, and that's clearly a part of what Stellate does and, and supports these scientists in communicating. And you kind of got your, your following. Am I right in that it, it kind of start, all started on Twitter in a way? Um, how did that come about? Like, how did you build your following? Um, and, and, you know, I think we were both attending SFN. That's, I think, how I initially started following you was through this community of neuroscientists. Can you, can you talk about that experience? Yeah. So I, I was wrapping up um, my undergraduate lab work. I finished at the University of Michigan and stayed on for another year to, to finish some work. And I, I think one of my undergraduate students that I was mentoring at the time was like, you need to get on Twitter. Like people are talking about science and I was like, okay. So when I made that transition to start my graduate work at MIT, um, started following like the professors who were online, my mentor at the time, um, and and you know it, I pretty quickly found that it was useful because there was important conversations happening about science and the field directly related to me, and it was people were sharing papers and resources and and providing support for one another, um, and you know I, I more or less for the like my first year just listened, didn't really participate. Um, and then later I, I stumbled on uh, graduate students like myself. Um, and you know, MIT is a little bit scary place to, to be a, a graduate student. Um, I, I definitely didn't fit the typical mold. I had a psychology background, not a hardcore sciences background. Like I was on the wait list. I didn't even get in right away. So I had a lot of like imposter syndrome about being there and being with all these brilliant people. And um, I kind of started tweeting about it and saw that other people were tweeting about it. And I was like, wow, there's like this whole network of other graduate students who also don't know what they're doing. Like, and realistically, no one knows what they're doing. But, um, you know, being in the cohort that I was in, I was like, wow, all of these people have, you know, their science figured out like this, like, I am not that person. Um, so I think in that way, I, I really started building a community there with other graduate students who were outside of my institution. And honestly, it's 
in many ways, one of the most valuable things that I've done during my PhD. Um, one, just having that support um, and community. You know, I could have been in the lab at 10 p.m. and tweeted something, oh, my experiment failed, like, please send cute dog pics. And I would receive, you know, <laughs> 30 cute dog pics. And like being able to chat about like the struggles of graduate school was really, really helpful for me. And then, you know, on the other side, it kind of transitioned into, um, which I didn't know at the time, what my career would actually end up being, you know, working in digital and social to build thought leadership. So even though that wasn't the goal at the time, um, it, it certainly was the beginning of, of a career in communication. Wow. And as far as your following, was it, I mean, would you say that your level of engagement and being able to kind of connect with the other, these other scientists was a part of how you built that following? I think, I think, you know, social media is social and this is what I tell everybody. Like it's, it's about two-way engagement and being consistent and, you know, it, it's similar to, to building a new friendship. You can't just be really active and then completely ghost for three months and then come back and be like, hey, listen to me, you know, there, there, there's some rule, like rules of engagement. And so, you know, those are on the more basic level. But I also think that, you know, I, I became really open about the struggles that I experienced in grad school and was talking about mental health and the impact of academia on my mental health maybe a little like before it was fashionable and that said <laughs> it's not an important topic but now it's it's, it's a very you know uh, obvious uh conversation that is happening continually which is amazing um so you know I, and i think that people really connected with that like yeah. i think a lot of people in academia struggle with their mental health because of the extreme pressures that that exist there um so yeah, I kept it pretty real. I, t I talked about the struggles and you know celebrated the wins and um, you know I think I just was really open about what my life was during that time. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's such a such a common experience, and it's something you know for myself as a mentor for people going into graduate school. I try to be really upfront with them about how hard of a time it was for me and you know the fact that it, it's it's going to be a long haul you don't yeah. know when it's going to be over you're likely going to be living in a city and not making you know a living wage um, yeah. which I think is a big part of it and yeah it definitely for me was some of the hardest years of my life that I just at one point you know I thought about taking time off I thought about yeah you know, stepping away from the bench. And um, eventually I was just like, all right, I'm just going to try to buckle down and get, get through this yeah. um, and, and finish as quickly as possible because I just can't remain in this state yeah. <laughs> of yeah. my life. Like that's how I felt about it. Um, so I, I, I commend you on, you know, being open about your experiences online because I think that can be a really scary thing. And a lot of times, um, there's this perception of, oh, I can't talk about certain things because that's going to impact the view of myself as a professional in the world or yeah. whatever. 
like I've posted tweets where I've had mentors say, Hey, maybe you should take that down. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we've all, we've all been there and, um, I think it's a really great point that, you know, there is a fine line, you know, I do use Twitter as a professional network, um, as I think most scientists do, but you know, you, you, if you look at the metrics at people who are looking or seeing at your, your tweets, it's a lot greater than, than you would anticipate. And so, um, I, you know, I, I would caution people to, to think twice about, you know, posts that they put online that they, if it's a network that they use, you know, semi-professionally, um, I've definitely experienced the same thing, experienced backlash, like there, you know, there are downsides to, to, to social media. And, you know, I think that um, people need to set, you know, goals and, and boundaries for, for themselves when, you know, there's people who could make career decisions, you know, seeing their content. Absolutely. Um, so I want to touch on one question just out of curiosity, because lately, you know, as part of the podcast and promoting things myself on, on these different platforms, there's been a lot of discussion around Twitter being this kind of toxic environment. Mm. And I'm just curious for your thoughts. Like, do you ever need, do you ever feel like you need to take a break from these social media platforms because they become this kind of intense space? Has that been yeah. your experience at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think on the net, as I mentioned, Twitter has been, you know, a tremendous community for me. Um, and there's been a lot of support there, but obviously it's not like LinkedIn where it's connected to your name. There are suits and, you know, pretty big suits in the science space. And, um, you know, I've had run-ins with a couple of them kind of bullying me a little bit. And, you know, that, that was really as a young graduate student and like, being kind of publicly dragged in some ways, like really difficult to deal with. And so I think- Can, can we pause? What's, what's a sued? A pseudonym, sorry. Okay. <laughs> so like early Twitter, like science Twitter, there was, there was a number of, of, you know, pseudonyms of people that like PIs that operate under names that are, are not their own. Okay. Um, and they, a lot of them had like blogs that they, that were like very early, um, um, like maybe, I don't know, a decade, decade ago. And that makes me feel old, but like, you know, when blogs were a little bit more fashionable than they are right. now. Um, and so people that just operated under a different name. Does that right. But, and are you referring to some of these scientists, which I think I kind of know what you're talking about now where they often could be very critical of yeah. different people's science and kind of ripping them apart a little bit online. Yeah, and it could be the science or, you know, like I think I remember once I tweeted something about reverse light dark cycle and for people who work with rodents know that, and, and just talking about I don't even remember what it was, you know, doing some experiment and reverse light dark, dark, excuse me, reverse light dark cycle. And they wrote like an entire blog post about like why behaviorists don't really know what they're doing and this new crop of, so it was just like, you know, it didn't directly mention me, but you knew that it was connected in some way. And there's a couple yeah. instances where something that I would say would 
you know, snowball into a whole nother conversation that wasn't the intention, but that is how social media works. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, that does happen. People subtweet, um, you know, each other at times. And I don't love that part of, um, you know, social media. And I think there are pockets of good communities on Twitter. And I I like to think that neuroscience and and the science community is one of those, but Mm -hmm. you got to protect it. So yeah, I I always tell people the number one rule for, you know, engaging on social media professionally is don't be an asshole. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. And academia is hard enough. We don't need people being an asshole. (laughs) And I mean, I feel like I have to push back I mean, I've felt this way probably since graduate school of like putting that positivity out into the world mm-hmm. because there's so much criticism and we're trained to be critical thinkers, right? right. Like, um, you know, our committees are founded on this idea that they're going to like really be hard on this graduate student while they're going yeah. through this experience, which was certainly my experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think it, it can be a lot. And like, why shouldn't we be positive about each other's work and really, you know, totally acknowledge right. and, and celebrate the work that we're impressed by? I think that's an important kind of Absolutely. Of- and, I, and I think because like Twitter is a space where it's so, there's so much open dialogue that people see it as like a level playing field when in reality, it's still it's still not, right? If you're a second year graduate student and you tweet something about either science or life as a scientist and you have this super famous scientist, like, you know, give a snarky remark, like that can do tremendous damage to, you know, a a young scientist, you know, perception of themselves and their science. And and I think that, uh, you know, a little bit more um, thought to, to like that kind of dynamic is, is, is needed. Absolutely. So I want to ask about writing and this storytelling um, aspect of communications that you brought up. How, you know, how much did your experience in graduate school play a role in being able to write these stories or where does that come from? Is that something like you know, you grew up writing and reading and kind of carried with you through your career. And, and how have you like honed that, that skill set? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I, 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 I wrote and read as a kid, but I wouldn't say that that was the, the real influence. I think for me, um, there's, there's two things. One, I, I love people. Like I said, I had a psych, I have a psychology background and basically went into it because I wanted to understand why people do the things that they do. Like people fascinate me. I love meeting new people and, and, and learning what drives people. And I'm sure you get the, the opportunity with all these amazing people that you interview the podcast, you know, get a sense of that. And, um, so, so that's one thing I, I'm, I like hearing people's narratives and, and finding what drives them. And that's ultimately what led me down the rabbit hole all the way into like literally remote controlling rodents' brains with lasers to figure out why they do what they do. Um, and then, so, so, so building a personal narrative is something that, or 
kind of comes easily to me, easy for myself or, or for other people, helping other people do that. And then I had really great mentors who believed in science communication. Um, sometimes I tell people that while I have a PhD in neuroscience from MIT, I also have a PhD in, in science politics. Um, <laughs> my mentor at, at the time, she is amazing at communication um, and, and building brand awareness. Everyone in the field knows who she is and she is amazing at it. And, and it's done wonders for her and it's done wonders for the people in her lab and the opportunities that become available to, to, to them. And so through that, I, I learned um, how important it is to, to build a persona and, and um, use whatever means you have available to you to, to communicate that. And um, so it wasn't, I don't wanna say it, it sounds, the way that I'm communicating this now, it sounds a little bit more um, intentional than it was, but I think given that I love discovering people's narratives and then I was also trained on how to execute on my own and tell my own story that's woven in with the science um, through my mentorship, I think that those kind of things combine to, to lead me down that path. She sounds like she was, and probably still is, a really supportive and also a bit creative of a mentor in that, you know, she uplifted these different aspects of the scientific space, which I think is a, a unique experience for you. And I, I would I would guess that there aren't, there are other mentors out there that like, if you had worked with someone else, your life would, might be a lot different today, or you might've felt like you wouldn't be able to celebrate those aspects of your career. Absolutely. Um, I feel incredibly grateful to have had um, Kei as a mentor in that, you know, she knew that during my PhD, I was slowly building this following and, and never once was she like, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. And the only advice that she gave you is like, oh, like maybe you should go in this direction or maybe, you know, maybe this tweet wasn't great, but like, don't stop, like keep, you know, sh you know, sharing your story and talking about science. And I think because she very much saw the value in, in science Twitter as a community. Um, and then in other ways, you know, during my PhD, I founded Interstellate, which is a um, science and art kind of magazine collective where I collected all of these beautiful unused images of the brain from scientists around the world and kind of just happened by accident. Um, and every step of the way, she was like, this is awesome. Keep doing it. She even gave funds from the lab to, to print actual copies that we ended up giving away for free. Um, and so and she even advocated for my institute to buy the copies for them to, to give to their donors for Christmas. So like she was always like trying to find ways to, to you know, promote her people's interests, whatever they would be. And, and you know, even though she really wanted me to stay in academia, um, you know, towards the end, she saw how I was struggling and, and let me take this time off to be creative um, and, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I think my experience in graduate school and my career now would be very different had I had a different mentor. Wow. 
Yeah, and Intercelli, again, like, it, you know, this was years ago. What year did you found Interstellate? I think it was founded in 2017. Okay, yeah. And I think the first one, the first magazine came out in 2018, and I think. Mm. <laughs> no, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, because I, I just remember, so at the time, I had a research associate who actually was the first interview I did for the podcast because she works for a um, cognition studios, which does like uh, scientific illustrations and that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and we both had this art background, like we both loved art. We'd go to like figure drawing classes together. And so we loved Interstellar and we were, you know, we were taking these images ourselves yeah. for our research, but not, on par with the kind of like beautiful and you know when I edit the episode I'm going to put up some of the the images from the magazine if that's okay well, yeah absolutely. because um, it's just it was so cool to see it and like there's I think there's aspects of what we do um that tie into this like creative spirit and this art artistic yeah part of science that doesn't always get talked about or um uplifted so I commend you on like putting that together it was in like for me as a scientist on the other side of the country like really cool to see um, yeah it was, you know it was a lot of fun um I think interstellate was another one of those things that even though I spent I did spend a ton of time on it probably time I should have been dedicating to finishing my thesis but at the same time like my mentor at the time was like never once did she say hey like this is cutting into, you know, she knew that this is what, like, I needed a creative outlet during this time. It was also an interesting time because I was more or less doing revision experiments for my thesis paper. My, my PhD paper was like one paper. So it was like six years into one massive nature paper with ton of data, like the supplemental figures are bananas. Um, and you know, revision experiments aren't that creative. It's someone else telling you this is what you have to do to get this published. And so I think I was feeling not creative. And so Interstellar kind of filled that gap. I was like, you know, coming in doing like the robot level um, revision experiments and then having an opportunity to, to you know, work on Interstellar. So. And where is Interstellar today? Like, is it still in existence or did you kind of I wish um you know for for a while I was desperately trying to keep it alive but um you know starting a career in a completely different space you know that took precedence at the time and um for a while I was like I want I really wanted to turn it into a like science writing training program where I could take on you know paid um, um students to help you know, build it out and, and venture into new fields of research. I mean, people take pretty images outside of neuroscience, but that's the space that I know. So my thought was like, if I could recruit these people, but it just, it, it never really took off, unfortunately. And so more or less Interstellar is in hibernation for the time being. Um, I would love at some point to do a proper book because, you know, people provided these images donated them and I feel some uh 
I guess I just burden is not the right word, but like I, I want people to to be able to access the project in 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 an easy way at some point. Um, because I feel tremendously grateful that people trusted me with, you know, their beautiful works of art. And often these images are the result of a ton of work. Um, so I would love to be able to like issue a, a book at some point that people could buy on Amazon or something. But I think that's the extent of which Interstellate will exist. I see. I think a book would be amazing. I would certainly buy one. Thank I feel you. like there's not, I think it's getting better, but there's like, a lack of gifts that you can give scientists that kind of embrace their science. <laughs> I think that would be really cool. Thank um, you. Yeah. I'm Hopefully trying myself to, I'm trying to venture into the publishing world a little bit and uh, it's, it's a very interesting space. I'll say it that. Is an interesting one. Yeah. I, I, you know, early on I had talked about, you know, building a book, but you know, some publishers wanted it to be like a book, like writing, lots of writing. And I was like, that's mm -hmm. not, for me, Interstellar, it's about the images and the stories behind the images and then using yeah. it to, to talk about what the brain is. Like, um, so we'll see, TBD. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, TBD. So you mentioned your PI wanting you to stay in academia. Can we touch a little bit on some of your own thoughts when you were going through that process of what what am I going to do next and you know because you I think in the academic environment you get a lot of um, pressure and influence and it's almost like even though I worked in industry then went to academia and then went back to industry mm. when you're in the academic sphere it's very much like you're going to become an academic you know yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. And I think it's it's been really exciting to see institutions and universities kind of, I think, are slowly evolving away from that mentality. I know like Columbia, they do a whole course on like alternative careers in science, which I think is incredible because I had no idea what I could do with a PhD when I finished. Like I said, I finished and literally the last slide of my thesis was an image of me on a boat with Boston in the background and I was like for the first time in my life I have no idea what I'm gonna do and I'm excited for it you know <laughs> but like it was terrifying like like I said I, I was so dead set on staying in academia and just had no idea what I could do outside of of being an academic scientist. So it, it, it was difficult, I, I will say that. And I, I do feel fortunate that at the time, like I had some money saved up that I could try a different, bunch of different things, talk to a bunch of different people. Um, and again, fortunate enough that, you know, the one thing a nature paper can afford to is that I think I could have come back had I decided to somewhere down the road. But like, again, this is all being like coming from a very like privileged position. Um, so, you know, this is why doing podcasts like this, I also give talks about alternative careers in science, what is out there. And I think, you know, all of that is, is tremendously important because there's so many things you can do outside of science. And I think just yesterday, I caught up with two of my former uh, MIT classmates 
neither of which are in academia anymore. One um, is a co-founder of a couple of biotech companies. The other is exploring medcoms. Um, you know, so, so I think in academia, it's difficult because you see, you, because, that is, because that is your community, you see the people that stay, but there's the majority of people leave and they go on to do amazing, incredible things. You just don't hear about them because it's not, it's not the space and it's not what, for the most part, you're, you're trained to do. So, you know, I think we still have a lot of work to, to normalize alternative careers in science because they're not alternative really, right? It's the norm. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I gained from the academic environment was I'd gone from working on a team at a biotech to, you know, everything having to be done by me. And um, I think that actually helped me build a lot of skills as an entrepreneur and feeling like I was capable of taking on, you know, in the science space, it's like taking on new experiments or new um, assays or whatever Mm -hmm. it is that you're working on. But in the entrepreneurial space, it's, it's kind of similar in that sense of like, there's all these new skills that you're going to have to learn to Mm -hmm. make this business, right? Yeah. Can you talk about that at all? And if you've had a similar experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, going back to when I was wrapping up my PhD and thinking about what else I can do, I remember talking with a couple of people who were like an academic public I was like really exploring anything that I could do and it's like I, you know I'm really good at sticking small things in rodent brains like that is like what I am very good at and I didn't realize all the other skills that being a PhD student and and you know managing a small team really gave me during during that time and it didn't become apparent to me until I started my first job at Russo Partners. And um, it sounds strange, but like account management, like at a PR firm, you're typically working for three to five clients um, and you're working on small teams that are different across you know, those clients. So the teams are different that, that support them. And so you have meetings with the client and you discuss like what the priorities are for the week and you have to kind of extract what your action items are from this hour long conversation and then meet with the team. And because PR is ever evolving, the priorities are always changing. You then have to like reprioritize and keep track of all of these things. And that's not what people, everyone's good at. And um, I didn't know that at the time. I remember coming out of a very long meeting with a client. And I was like, okay, so here are the things that we need to do. And one of my more senior colleagues was like, how did you do that? And I was like, oh, it's easy. Like these are the salient points. Like these are the next steps. And he was like, okay. And so like PR, I think graduate students are, are very good at keeping multiple balls in the air, um, you know, keeping track of deadlines for the most part. Um, And so I think account management, at least in the PR space, is something that PhD students are are very good at doing. And it seems like a soft skill, but I think it translates across a lot of different different industries. Um, But 
you know, coming out of my PhD, I did freelance at the time, but I didn't really know the business of PR, how to make it profitable, how to run an account, um, you know, big things like you're supposed to write an agenda before every call and write action items after every call, right? Like these are things that I had no idea. I, I tell people that when they reference that decade in which I was in science, I was like, treat me like an alien. Like whatever happened then, I have no idea because I was just so focused on science. I was in lab at 10 a.m. and I left at 10 p.m. every day <laughs> for a very long time, right? So, wow. you know, I, I had no idea what was outside of the science world. Like all of my friends were scientists. My boyfriends were scientists. Like, um, it was just like, you know, a, a this kind of tunnel that I was in. Um, and so I do feel like the, the industry experience that I had working at the agencies that I did were tremendously valuable in rounding out my skill set and then also learning the business of, of PR. Um, and I think to your point, being a PhD student, like you drive your project often by yourself and pull in people as needed and you have to kind of be fearless to kind of take the leap to do a new experiment that you've never learned how to do and sometimes just completely figure it out on your own. So I think in that way, PhDs are trained to be entrepreneurs. Um, it's just, you're transferring those skills into that space. Absolutely. Um, so one question I love to ask the guests um, is if there was a time during your scientific career when you experienced something really exciting, like, you know, we can call it a breakthrough or whatever, but just that day when you saw a result or, you know, something happened, it, yeah. if, if you have a story like that to share. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there are a number of, of times, again, because my, my main PhD project was like this monster of a project, but it was a really hard one to wrangle. Um, I was really interested in the role of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the prefrontal cortex, which um, is like right behind your forehead. And everyone studies dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, which is what people tend to think of as like this reward reinforcement signal. But the interesting thing about dopamine in the prefrontal cortex is that it is preferentially sensitive to aversive stimuli, to bad things, which is like kind of flies in the face of, of what we think that dopamine does. And um, Stefan Lamel and a number of other scientists had, had kind of uncovered this preferential uh, sensitivity and I was like this makes zero sense and I want to figure out what's happening and like what is dopamine doing and what like specific populations of cells is it acting on to kind of drive behavior we didn't know any of these things um but dopamine in the prefrontal cortex does a lot of things and so it was a very complicated project um I was trying to identify these projection cells so cells originate in the PFC and then go elsewhere in the brain that drive responses to, to aversive stimuli, so negative things, and then seeing how dopamine interfaces with them. And I found this population of cells, the, the, their P 
PFC neurons that project to the periapical ductal gray, which is highly responsive to anything negative in, in the environment. And I was like, oh, and I, we found if we artificially stimulated this pathway that um, it would drive like aversive related behaviors. And I was like, this is amazing. I found the pathway. Dopamine is going to activate this pathway and it's going to be awesome. And like, this is my paper and I'm, I'm done. So what we did was we, we took like the, the brain out of an animal and put it into a, a, like a slice. We prepared a slice and we, we patched onto the cell to record activity and washed dopamine onto it and, we're, and nothing happened, nothing. And we did probably 200 cells this way. And we're like, how is this possible? You know, this doesn't make any sense. Um, and we did a couple of other experiments to kind of get at this idea and, and nothing was working. And we were like, well, I guess that's just not what happens. And then kind of going in and reading the literature, I realized that a lot of, and, and also like looking at the dopamine receptors on this, this popular, there's, there's no dopamine receptors on this, this population of neurons. So it's like, Clearly, dopamine's not doing anything, at least um, when it's it's outside of the animal, um, which is the key point here, because what we found is that the majority of dopamine receptors are actually presynaptic, so on neurons that impinge onto these cells. And so I was like, well, maybe it's gating this input. And you can't look at that in a brain slice that is not fully intact, because you need those intact inputs. Um, and so I had this idea, I was like, we need to do this in vivo in an intact animal. Um, and the technology at the time just didn't really like exist to do exactly what I wanted and it wasn't fully validated. And I, I thought it like, worked with my, my mentor at the time. I was like, this is the experiment. I wanna do in vivo electrophysiology in the last six months of my PhD, which I had never done before. Like, it's crazy, it changed. <laughs> like, Caitlin, you don't wanna do this. Like, <laughs> my thesis was like they, they just wanted me to get out they're like just finish it up like i was like no like i really want to do this experiment like we have the tech in the lab like it's going to take some finagling and stuff but um we did it we did it in collaboration with with two of my colleagues there one who's on the computational side who helped tremendously and we did our first animal like we immediately ran like exported all the data i ran to his computer he coded up you know, a quick analysis and like, we, I basically fell out of my chair when I saw like the activity, because what we did see is in a fully intact animal stimulating dopamine onto these neurons, while there was an aversive stimulus um, happening at the same time, it actually amplified that signal, um, which is kind of, you know, it just, it just, it was just way more complicated than we ever could have imagined. We kept trying to simplify the problem but it clearly wasn't working. It's the brain. It does very complicated things. And I, I think I cried. I think I like <laughs> called literally everybody that I knew. And, yeah. you know, we still had a number of more animals to collect, but as we collected more data, it was all supportive of, of you know, what we had initially found. And I think at that moment, I, it was like, it, I don't even know, it was obviously a very important part of, of the paper, but it was like kind of that one where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to graduate. Like this paper can be done. Like, you know, it, it's not a pretty bow, but it, it's a bow, right? Yeah. Wow. And I feel like that's so, 
reflective of the trials and tribulations of the neuroscience field because so much of like the science that a lot of people do we're trying to do this in a dish and it's yeah really really hard to translate to this multicellular you know very complex organ um and I that's that's just incredible that you really pushed for that experiment and were able to (laughs) to actually see that effect I had a lot of help from a lot of people. I, I tell people that, you know, I finishing my PhD, like, like my team literally dragged me over the finish line, kicking and screaming, because they were like, we are going to finish this paper. And, and it was a lot of help from a lot of talented people, but it, it, was, it was a journey, that's for sure. Wow. Um, so is dopamine your favorite neurotransmitter? Yeah. <laughs> I, I've studied dopamine for a decade. Um, you know, uh, even when I was an undergraduate, I was using fast scan electro, um, electrophysiology, um, sorry, fast scan cyclic voltammetry to actually record dopamine neurotransmission in awake and, and, and behaving animals. And that was kind of where I fell in love. I mean, I've always been really fascinated by motivated behaviors and dopamine is that that neurotransmitter that that's involved. So it's my very favorite. cool. I have a nerd question. So as someone who, you know, I dabbled in neuroscience, I wouldn't say mm-hmm. like I'm I'm not like a pure neuroscientist. I was more on the systems biology side and that kind of thing. But I think it's interesting as scientists, um how much we learn in the lab and how little of it can be translated to like our real lives yeah so I'm just pure nerd curiosity like is there anything that you've learned from neuroscience that you feel like you can actually kind of like take in like for instance about motivation like you've studied motivations of behavior yeah yeah I mean I I started studying behavior and motivation because I was really fascinated in understanding why people do things that are bad for themselves. Um, that was kind of, it was like a, a thesis that I wrote in, in, in high school, actually, and that kind of stemmed from, you know, people in my family struggling with addiction or depression and, and myself. I mean, I, I had um, stints of like eating problems and you know that kind of flies in the face of what your evolutionary instincts tell you to do right like dopamine is supposed to motivate you to do things that increase your survival like eat and drink water and have sex to to to, you know pass your genes to the next generation so that's really where like my interest in dopamine started is why do people do things that they do and why do they do things that are are bad for them and um you know i think there are a lot of things that i've learned but particularly in like the mood disorder addiction space like i i can kind of step back and, and think about okay what's going on inside of me to like drive you know this need or this want or this anxiety that i'm having like um, I think it's it's you know becoming more known that you know mental health disorders, for example, are a chemical and imbal- like it's it's an actual physical manifestation. Um, 
And so I think, you know, bits and pieces of that, like I, I try to bring into my life and think about, like, I also have a very extensive knowledge of working pharmacology. So, um, you know, why that comes in handy, it does from time to time. But overall, I think it's less, your peachy is less about, you know, becoming, in terms of translatable knowledge, it's less about like this really small corner of the universe that you're an expert in, but it's all the other things that you, that you learn along the way. Like I tell people, I am an expert in this world expert or was probably someone has taken my place in this very small section of the brain that, you know, I really care about, but everyone else is just like, oh, that's cool or whatever. But you know, it's, it's the whole process of the PhD and the skills that you learn and, and um, you know, how you connect that with contributions to society that I think are, are the important parts. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree. Um, looking back on your graduate school or even your early scientific experience, is there anything you wish you could tell yourself about that time in your life? You know, my whole journey has not been perfect. And there's been so many struggles that, you know, were, were at the time very difficult and I still have struggles. And I think would I do anything differently than what I did? Probably not. Like I, it made me the person who I am today and gave me the opportunities that I have now. I think the biggest thing was um, you know, just be confident. Like you, I wish I could have told myself you're badass. You you belong there. You have to be there. Like, you know, let go of all of this anxiety and insecurity and just like, just keep doing what you're doing because, you know, for so long, I was really focused on like being the best at something and, um, you know, no one's the best at anything all the time. Um, and I never, certainly never was the best at, what I was trying to be. So, you know, it, I think I just would have advised myself to be a little bit kinder to myself. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great message and, and note for us to kind of conclude on. And I just want to thank you for taking the time today to, to share your experiences with everyone um, who listens to the podcast and, um, and I think really embrace these alternative journeys and um, alternative career paths. I think it's important to, to recognize. Um, and for your company, you can follow Stellate on Twitter, correct? There's mm -hmm. Twitter. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, what, what's a good contact? Um, Caitlin at stellatecoms.com. Awesome. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter as well. Reach out through LinkedIn. Always happy to connect on all the channels, all the ways, um, and always happy to chat about all careers in science. Yeah, so if you're a scientist out there who needs some help with their PR, social media, Caitlin is the one to reach out to. Um, I'll put all of the links below our uh, YouTube as well as our um, Apple and Spotify uh, episodes where you can listen to all of the Lady Scientist podcast episodes. So thank you so much, Caitlin. Thanks for having me on the show.